The following program is brought to you by Caltech. So this is our final talk for the short course. And after this, there's going to be food. <laughs> um, so Julie Castillo-Roger is an expert in materials physics, which she applies to a variety of solar system bodies in order to infer constraints on their origin and evolution. She was a co-founder of JPL's Ice Physics Lab and is the PI of the ICE Astromaterials Lab Initiative. She has been consulting for a variety of instruments and missions targeting small bodies and outer planet satellites, and most recently for the definition of the architecture for the human exploration of Phobos and Deimos. So I was assigned a different um, talk title earlier, but I figured that by now my uh, colleagues would have already presented everything you need to know about uh, small bodies and missions, and probably 10 times better than I I would be able to do. So I decided to focus on some type of um, summary and synthesis of what we know about small bodies. And I would like to talk about system science and show how system science, that is to say, the amount of information that you get at the system of objects instead of going from one object in one place to another object in another place, how this has helped us uh, understand origins. And right now I'm stuck. So. But I can, so system, okay, so I can start talking. System science is, and system exploration is when you, um, you have a mission. So generally, it's a big, it has to be a big mission, like the Cassini-Hogan's mission. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about system science. I'm going to especially focus on Cassini-Hogan's because I don't think many people realize that the mission that has brought to us the most information about small bodies, it's Cassini. To me, it's my favorite mission in the, in the world. And then I will contrast that wealth of data that we got from Cassini to um, what we don't know about Phobos and Deimos. And the reason why we don't know so much about Phobos and Deimos and we don't know their origin, despite the great interest from the community, it's because we didn't get system science. Basically, we didn't have the opportunities to get information across the Martian system from the dust, from Phobos, and from Deimos that will ena enable us to uh, constrain the origin of these objects. And then I'll talk about future missions as well. So system science, as I just said, it's when you have a mission that can give you information about all the objects in the given system. And here I'm focusing on a giant planet so it has a variety of bodies. But this is completely uh, valid uh, when you have a system of asteroids, when you have the Trojan cloud, it's a system, of, a system of objects. You need to get information from a vari variety of these objects in order to get constraints on the big picture. So the relationship between these objects in a system is a function of their origin, which may or not be common. And the interactions of fields, <coughs> magnetic field, gravity field that are going to drive the evolution of these objects. So I'm going to focus on the giant planet. So it's good because it's complementary from what my colleagues have presented so far. And especially because giant planets uh, contain, I mean, giant planetary systems contain key information about the source of materials in, uh, in the solar nebula at the time of their formation. And on top of that, 
the, the process that drive the evolution of these planetary systems contain key information for understanding the evolution of the solar system in general and of exoplanetary systems. So, Cassini. So why the Saturn, Saturnian system? What is so interesting uh, to see in, in the Saturnian system? First, it has a lot of satellites and the largest ring system. And we would like to understand the origins of these uh, objects. And it has five and more types of different types of satellites, which is quite uh, outstanding. Why does it matter? Why would I like to talk today about this particular uh, system? It's because first, it's the best studied system of objects. And as I just said, it can help us understand uh, the formation and evolution of exoplanetary systems and even the solar system. And it's the home of two astrobiological targets, Titan and Enceladus, uh, which is uh, this one. So Cassini got there in May, June 2004. We go there. So here is the Saturnian system. It has a, a lot of objects. It has inner satellites, which are relatively small, and have some interesting relationship with the rings. And I'm going to delve into that aspect in more details later. It has five medium-sized satellites. So this includes MIMAS, Enceladus, Tesis, Dione, and Rhea. A large satellite, which is Titan, which is more, bears more resemblance with the large satellites in the Jovian system. And it has Iapetus, which is kind of this odd object, completely different from the rest of all these other satellites. And then it has Phoebe, to be the uh, captured object. I mean, it's been realized uh, early on. And as I just said, these satellites, they have a nice interaction with the rings. Enceladus is believed to be the source of the E-ring. Antesis itself, and possibly also uh, Dione, have some relationship with the E-ring. So it's a, I mean, if you go to uh, a uh, system like this, when you have rings and satellites, you cannot just go and have one flyby. You know, because you're not going to learn anything about, about the system. So I'm going to go very basic. I'm going to talk about very simple information that we've got from Cassini at Saturn. This shows the density of the satellites as a function of their distance to the planet. As a comparison, uh, here I've plotted the density of the Jovian satellites, the big Jovian satellites, as a function of distance, and also there are small, a number of small satellites in the Jovian systems. But what you see here is that there is an increase of the density of the satellites uh, closer to the planet. And until Cassini got to Saturn, the general idea for the formation of the satellites was that they formed in a subnebula, and that there was a gradient of density from the planet to the outskirts, with a lot of material near the planet and much less material towards the, uh, the end of, of the system. And that would explain why you have denser, denser objects near the planet. But in the Saturnian system, in blue, the blue points, you have a picture that is completely different. You have this large Titan. It has a density which is close to the density that one would expect if it formed from uh, in the solar um, from material from the solar nebula, and then you have a bunch of very small satellites with a density less than 1,000 kilogram per cubic meter, and then you have some. Uh, I mean, you have the medium-sized satellites, and there is no real uh, logic 
in how the densities of these objects vary with distance to the planet. My mass, you know, it's uh, barely uh, greater than the density of water ice. Density, um, thesis, sorry, has a density which is less than the density of water ice. And then you have uh, Enceladus, Dione, Rhea, and there is no real logic in the progression of the density with respect to the planet. Now let's look at different perspectives. If we, now we plot the mass of these objects as a function of the distance, we see some interesting trend. We see that the small objects, the small uh, inner moons that are close to the planet, they follow some trend. And the medium-sized satellites, they seem to follow a different trend. And this is different from what we observe in the Galilean system. And there are very smart people out there, and his name, his name is uh, Sebastian Chernoz, who said, hmm, it's odd that you would have something like that which is so different from what you have in the Jovian system. So he asked me to look with him at, the various, uh, at various clues, and one of them uh, is the moonlets. Cassini discovered propellers, very small objects, just 10 to 100 meters uh, in, uh, in, in size, embedded in the rings. And you see, you are, see them here. You have a lot of them in the rings. And it's what I would call clue number one to understanding the origin of the medium-sized satellites of Saturn. Here you have another example of a bigger object, Pan, which is uh, it's, uh, tens of uh, kilometers in size, and it uh, plays a very interesting role in, uh, in the Saturn, uh, Saturnian ring system because it's embedded in the anchor gap, and keeps it open and creates waves in, uh, in the rings. Or Daphnis, you have another example. Daphnis is in the killer gap, and you see these very nice structures. So Cassini, I love Cassini. Cassini has the best pictures. <laughs> so there is a second clue that uh, we looked at with uh, Sebastian, and uh, we were very lucky that uh, Paul Schenk and uh, Michel Kirchhoff looked in, had a new look at the crater distribution at the surface of the Saturn satellites. Uh, I don't expect you to read the table. Basically, what it tells us is that my mass seems to be younger than Tessis, which seems to be younger than Dione. And that's counterintuitive, because you would expect that the object that is closer to the planet is going to be the object of a lot of impacting as a consequence of the focusing of planetesimal flux or cometary flux uh, targeting the planet. But, and on top of that, it seems that large craters at the surface of Mimas or Tessis, this is Odysseus uh, on Tessis, large craters are younger than the surface, the overall surface of these objects. So once again, it is counterintuitive, sorry, that the largest craters would be some of the youngest features at the surface of these objects. And that's some closer image, so that's Odysseus and that's Herschel and Mimas, and both of these craters, they contain very fewer, very few craters, small craters uh, inside here, and some people have inferred that their age is relatively young. Clue number three, shapes. This is great when you have a mission that can give you images from hundreds of objects, and so you have nice pictures of the shapes of uh, Atlas and Pan and over inner moons, and you see they look like a flying saucer, saucer, saucer here. 
and uh, this uh, ring here has been interpreted as the, the, the signature of accretion of dust on this object, so primarily across the equator. And that was worked by Caroline Porco, by the way. So Sebastian had this very cool idea that maybe the medium-sized satellites they didn't form in a sub-nebula. They formed from a ring, the ring of Saturn, which I think is a super cool idea. So the basic idea is the following. In the, the progenitor that destroyed and formed the ring of Saturn, and we don't know what it is, could be a giant comet, could be a proto-satellite. Uh, this progenitor had some rock, chunks of rocks that remained embedded in the ring that was overall, uh, domin uh, otherwise dominated by ice. And the reason for that is that we, the ring is in a region where silicates are outside their wash limit and they are going to uh, be um, eaten by the planet. But you still have a few chunks of materials here and there. And Sebastian speculated that these chunks are going to accrete uh, ice uh, within their hill sphere. And uh, if the ice chunk is relatively uh, large, like uh, 50 to 100 kilometers, which is believed to be the uh, representative of Enceladus or Dione or Orthesis, then you get with uh, an, uh, a finite satellite final satellite size, which is a few hundred kilometers in size. So it's not just a speculation, because uh, Sebastian did uh, do the model in detail. And so the chunks of silicates are create a nice shell. And these protomoons are going to migrate outward by tidal interaction within the rings. The ice-dominated satellites form at the outer edge of the ring, because this is where uh, the ice is going to be very stable. I mean, these ice-dominated satellites are going to be stable. And this is where you can form a Tethys-like object, which is dominated by water ice. The final silicate mass fraction is going to be a function of the original chunk size. And when these protomoons get to the edge of the ring, they are going to collide with each other. They are going to increase in size. And they are going to uh, increase their fraction of, uh, of water ice. So this is how you get these large impactors in the end. And this is how we can reconcile uh, the, the edge of the surface, uh, which seems to be all out of place, you know, with uh, a large crater that is younger than uh, the overall surface age of the moons. It's because these large craters are the signatures of planetocentric impacting, not heliocentric impacting. That is to say, at the edge of the ring, you have these protomoons, they just collide with each other, and they form these large impacts. At least everything seems to work relatively well. So just a consequence of this is that the objects that are the farthest from the planet or from the rings, like Rhea, are those objects that formed the earliest. They are the oldest in the system, while the objects that formed closest, that are found closest to the, to the planet right now are these objects that formed the latest. They are the youngest objects. So basically, in this framework, my mass is the youngest of the medium-sized satellites. Rhea is the uh, oldest of the medium-sized satellites within Titan's orbit. Implications. The satellite, uh, satellite age is tied to the uh, time of formation in the ring and then the distance to the rings. So it's the reason why my mass 
And also, I'll talk about the Uranian satellites later. These objects are relatively young, and again, this is counterintuitive. The satellite composition is going to be dominated by the ring progenitor. And we have little constraints about that. Could be a proto-satellite, as has been suggested by Robin Canop, a proto-Titan that formed very early, had a lot of aluminum 26, was partially differentiated, migrates towards the planet and, uh, by type 1 migration, and then is disrupted. And what we see right now uh, in the ring uh, is the icy shell of this proto-object. Or it could be a large TNO, as has been suggested by Sébastien Chernoz. So we cannot conclude with the evidence at hand, but there is a big consequence uh, in the time of formation of these objects. If we have a large proto-satellite uh, at the origin of the ring, this means that the rings could be very old, about you know, 4.5 billion years, and the satellites themselves could be very old. On the other hand, if we have a large TNO, this could have happened, I mean, its uh, disruption at Saturn could have happened at any time, uh, possibly during the late TV bombardment would be a good time, and in which case an object like Rhea would be only 2.5 billion years old, and the satellites would have lost, uh, would not have had a lot of uh, uh, radioisotopes uh, to um, promote their evolution since they formed very late. They formed, uh, uh, um, sorry, sooner, sooner than, no, after 2.5 billion years. And, uh, and then the large basins are likely to be due to co-orbitals, as I just mentioned. So the geophysical consequences, satellites are created differentiated, ice above rock, which is, uh, I think is thought-provoking. Uh, we need to be able to demonstrate that this is the case based on geophysical models. Uh, because uh, now our uh, initial condition for the geophysical model is that these satellites are created extremely porous. The ice was extremely porous. So we need to understand the evolution of this uh, uh, class of, uh, of bodies. And I see that everybody is uh, getting more and more concerned about my talk. So maybe I'm going to ask you for the helmet at some point. Um, so the extent of endogenic activity that is possible within the object then is going to be a function of their time of formation. And I mean, if, if these objects form very late, they are going to miss the opportunity to have heat from uh, potassium-40, for example. So we need to understand how we can explain the current uh, surfaces, the current geology uh, in this context. And then how can we explain activity at Enceladus if Enceladus is an object that are created already differentiated? Yeah, I, I can see Hal disagrees um, uh, in, in these conditions. And maybe Enceladus has a different origin, I don't know. But it's work in progress, and the advantage of this model is that it can explain a lot of features in the, in the Saturnian system. And Robin Canip likes it too, you know, so maybe it's... Well, a she has a complete <laughs> model that's similar. Uh -huh. but, uh, and doesn't have a rock core, so it does predict something totally different. Yeah, she predicts thesis and she predicts MIMAS, but basically I think Enceladus is uh, taken out of the mix uh, because it's so yeah, difficult. It's too far away yeah. yeah, I know this one. So, um, so this opens the door to um, other systems and especially the Uranian system. As you can see here, uh, Uranus has a very nice system of rings, and it has a lot of satellites all over the place, embedded in the rings. 
So, and you know, NASA is interested in uh, running a study uh, for a future mission to the Uranian uh, system. So, I think it's relevant uh, to consider what type of uh, information we would find there. Did the same thing um, as for Saturn, looked at the variations of the density of the Uranian satellite as a function of the distance to the planet. And what we find, same thing, all over the place. There is no logical evolution in the density of the medium-sized uh, Uranian satellites as a function of distance to the planet. So it looks more like Saturn in that regard. But then when you put the, put the mass as a function of distance, you see these trends again. So possibly, uh, based on the evidence so far, it's possible that uh, indeed the Uranian satellites could have formed from ring material, and it's a model that we are developing with Sebastian. But um, of course, we need to send emissions there to get a better idea of what's going on. Um, just a few words. There are other uh, similarities between the Saturnian system and the Uranian system, and one of them is that you have uh, an object like Ariel that shares a lot of properties and features, uh, geophysical properties and surface features with Enceladus in terms of uh, rock fraction, 62% versus 57% of uh, rock in mass. Surface is rel appear, appears relatively young. There is some tectonic activity. And the tidal heat that is uh, expected at Ariel is about five times the one that you would expect at Enceladus. So once again, I mean, uh, it's all I have as information right now, but if we go to the Uranian system, that would be one thing to test. Is there activity at Ariel as we have observed activity at Enceladus? A few words about irregular satellites, my favorite bodies in the entire world. Uh, Phoebe, so there are irregular satellites uh, all over the place. Uh, Phoebe, Himalaya, Sycorax, Nereid, uh, they all are about the same size of 50 to 200 kilometers. And this is important uh, because there are um, formation models that can explain that. I'm going to detail that in a few minutes. And most importantly, they share some uh, genetic relationship possibly with the Trojan asteroids. So it's important to um, get information about these irregular satellites in order to better understand uh, the solar uh, system dynamical evolution and see if indeed the Trojan asteroids came from uh, the outer solar system. Phoebe may be the best first and best observed KBO. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, at its surface, you have see a lot of things. There is ferrous iron, there is some water ice for sure. And uh, people have suggested that you have carbonaceous material, like material that shares similar properties properties uh, with uh, C-type asteroids, although this is a matter of debate. Um, and, uh, but something sure is that Phoebe's density, which is about 1.6, uh, is greater than you know, the satellite average and uh, could be ab about the same, type, uh, the same density as Pluto or Triton, depending on the amount of, of porosity in this object. And actually, in, in a paper that was published a couple of weeks ago with Torrance and, and others, we have demonstrated that uh, in Phoebe there is possibly just 15% of porosity, so that its density would be of the order of 2 uh, gram per cubic centimeter. I'm going to pass on this one. 
Phoebe is very cool. Did you believe it? Phoebe is very cool, and uh, people like Peter Thomas are very, very good at seeing these things. So it's not a potato, and uh, this one is a little bit uh, like mind-boggling, because when you're small, it's hard to get spherical, as uh, Johnson and Magetin uh, stated in their paper, and Jim uh, Bell touched also upon that uh, in his talk. But we found that not only his shell is, is spherical, but it seems to be in some equilibrium with, with the rotation of this object. Um, and we've demonstrated that it's not an observational bias. So it's not the product of you know, sculpting that would you know, sculpt a lot of material here, but not at the equator. Uh, so it seems to be a natural uh, result of the evolution of the object. And, uh, so it may be a small planet that was involved in the formation of larger satellites, for sure. Two possible models, we've just published that. So either Phoebe was composed of weak ices, like amorphous ice, for example, is a material that is very weak, or nitrogen ice or methane ice. These are materials that are uh, relatively soft at very low temperature or Phoebe formed early enough to undergo partial melt. And we believe that we have a combination of these two. Phoebe could form within a few million years, while uh, aluminum-26 was still an important source of heat in the system. And uh, this, would have, this partial melt or entire melting of the ice would have resulted in relaxation of the shell. And this is in line with a model that uh, was introduced uh, uh, a few years ago, in, that shows that as a, the, in the Kuiper belt, uh, planetesimals are created relatively fast. In the two, three million years, you have this jump in uh, the, this change in the density of material in the system, of uh, large objects in the system. And Phoebe could be a representative of these uh, uh, generations of large planetesimals that form very, very fast. And other observations, like from Bill Bodke and uh, Jeff Cusy, have shown that these large planetesimals that are like between 50 and 200 kilometers in radius, uh, in, uh, in diameter, they are all over the place in the solar system. So Phoebe could be a representative of these objects, and we would expect that large, over large irregular satellites or large Trojan asteroids are also, uh, you know, formed in a common place, in a common reservoir, and during the same time frame. Implications, so Phoebe is, uh, is a large planetesimal and uh, possibly came from the Kuiper belt. It formed very rapidly. And we have evidence from spectral properties that uh, it was subject to an early phase of hydrothermal activity. You see hydrated minerals on its surface that could come from the object itself or could come from its neighbors, irregular satellites that were captured during the same time frame. But there has been hydrothermal activity at this class of object early on, which goes with the idea that they form very fast and with aluminum 26. And, uh, and now we are, with Jonathan Lunin, we are working on the implications of, of this, which is that the satellites, the large satellites that formed from this class of planetesimals could also have a lot of hydrating minerals uh, when, uh, when they form. But as Jim uh, mentioned earlier, uh, you have some, uh, some answers and you get new questions. So um, we need to find geophysical evidence for the new accretion model, have some idea of what the ring's progenitor was, 
and then constrain the time formation of the satellite system, or understand the origin of activity in Enceladus, and understand Iapetus and Hyperion, which are completely uh, different in terms of properties and density and everything. So I have, so the way forward, um, ideally in the future, to be an interesting mission. It will be interesting to uh, send uh, to a system of, of objects the capability to obtain chemical measurements at all these objects. That would make life so much easier to have directly chemical measurements rather than you know trying to do these games with just the density and the shape of these bodies. That would be cool. So this is just. Uh, science fiction uh, type of mission when you, ha you, you send to the Uranian systems uh, small deployables that can make uh, chemical measurements at all these objects and whether it's in situ measurements or gamma, uh, gamma ray and neutron detection type of measurements, I, I think it's important to go to the next step and uh, get systematic information about the chemistry of the systems and this is valid for the asteroid belt you know, uh, and so on. So if I have a few minutes, I'm going to talk rapidly about Phobos and Deimos. Why? Because it's Mars. So these objects, I mean, people have been trying to get there a number of times, but there is some problem, some malediction maybe. Um, it's been difficult to send missions dedicated to Phobos and Deimos. We have only space-borne observations that were acquired by missions that uh, happen to be in the system of Mars, but you know, dedicated to Mars. And of course, the most recent uh, missions that attem attempted to reach Phobos, it's Phobos Grunt, and you know the story, it's, uh, it didn't end well. So, yeah, no dedicated mission. Uh, but something that we know from Mars Express is that Phobos uh, shows at the surface similar proper uh, spectral properties with Mars. And uh, in recent years, uh, you've seen um, at least two models that have been suggested uh, for the origin of Phobos, in which he, he recreated for Martian ejecta. So not just the dust, but the entire object basically is either a large fragment of Mars or the recreation of ejecta uh, in a ring of materials uh, formed during the late heavy bombardment at Mars. And of course, so outside the fact that these objects are potential astrobiological targets, they also present outstanding vantage points for human exploration. And right now there, is, uh, there are a bunch of people who are interested in uh, sending humans to Phobos and Deimos. So we just need to understand what these objects are made of also for this reason. So that just to give you an idea of scale, Phobos is uh, about the size of Eros. Deimos is, uh, is about half the size of Phobos, but it's much lar larger than uh, Itokawa, just for the scale. Phobos is a complex object in that uh, it shows a, a large amount of diversity at its surface, whether it's spectral diversity or geological diversity. And here you have um, spectral measurements in the visible near infrared obtained by uh, Scott Murchie, who happens to attend the workshop. And uh, it shows that some region of Phobos, they uh, share similar spectral properties with a C-type asteroid. And here it's uh, Mathilde taken as an example. While the rest of the object is, is redder, its origin is, uh, is uh, unconstrained. And here you see you have this blue uh, C-type 
of material uh, associated with uh, the crater's thickness, and you have red material all over the place otherwise. And Mars expressed uh, data suggests that this is Mars material that has been accreted and recovered the surface. Uh, the truth first table, uh, this is the table that I uh, took from um, Joanna, who is uh, the PI on the um, um, planetary Fourier spectrometer on Mars Express. And it shows uh, for the different types of uh, origins that have been suggested for Phobos, Capture, In-Situ, or Ejecta, uh, you know, some possible match. Uh, based on uh, what we have in the libraries of uh, spectral properties. And this table is interesting because it shows the discrepancy between thermal infrared measurement and visible and near-infrared measurements. So basically, you know, it's, it's not clear whether you have organics, whether you have, vol I mean, thermal infrared data tell us that they are volatiles on Phobos, but apparently the visible and near data are not so. Um, robust in that regard, uh, so clear in that regard. But there seem to be some uh, consistency with respect to silicates, like the uh, dust material. Apparently, the red material at the surface seems to be silicate and seems to be associated with Mars. The two types of uh, observations agree about that. And it's been suggested that it's Mars-like silicate, and, uh, and I think it makes sense and possibly space swivel basalt. So Carly Peters, uh, she had this very nice also truth, uh, false or truth table about, you know, how can we link uh, the spectral properties to the origin of the object. So you could have inherent heterogeneity of, uh, you know, blue and red unit are two different materials. One is the product of weathering. Sorry, uh, the red unit is the product of the weathering of the blue unit although the most recent experimental measurements by Vernadza seems to uh, reject this idea. And one is accumulation of Martian dust. So the red unit is the accumulation of Martian dust. So it's not clear at all. Basically, you see all these arrows where they go. Basically, you cannot conclude uh, whether it's an asteroid that was captured and you know, that was recovered by uh, red dust, or if it's directly, or the entire object is the product of recreation of Mars debris, or if the object co-accreted with Mars, we cannot just tell. But something sure is that you can see on this uh, image from high-rise, high-resolution imaging of uh, dust at the surface of Phobos, you can see that you have a pattern that suggests that the red dust is deposited onto Phobos. And uh, I'm just, because I think I'm running out of time, so based on all this information that we've got, especially from Mars Express, and previous observations on the geology by, uh, obtained by Peter Thomas. We have introduced this model, which is a working geophysical model that would help us constrain the tidal evolution of the object, so constrain its origin, in which the object would be mostly solid except for macroporosity resulting from the Stickney crater. So you would have macroporosity all over the place in a material which may be hydrated silicate or not. There may be water or not, we don't really know. We would need some chemical measurements to answer that question. And uh, on top of this relatively solid bulk, you would have a layer which is being constrained to be uh, 50 to 120 meters thick, uh, sorry, 10, 10 here, 10 meters to 120 meters thick uh, of regolith. 
and um, and in between you would have a, a layer that has been the product of a lot of collisional activity and based on you know the geology, geological history. So we are in the process of publishing these uh, results and what we would need now is a mission to get to Phobos and uh, get ground truth uh, data. So we, so, okay, so we need to get to Phobos. We also need to, uh, to get to Demos. I didn't talk about Demos because we have little information yet that enable us to constrain its origin. We need to characterize the flux of dust within the Martian system. And this is the reason why we need system exploration, not just going to one object or going to the other object. We need to have the, the capability uh, in a mission to also understand the uh, nature of dust, its direction, and so on between the objects. Because otherwise, I don't think we will progress very much with the exploration of Phobos and Demos. And we need to have in situ characterization of multiple areas of the surface of these objects, considering the diversity that they present. And uh, summary, so small bodies are complex objects. There is a large diversity of properties within a given class, as my colleagues presented. And there is a large diversity uh, possible at a given object. So sample return. It's going to be a limited source of information unless you effectively can return samples from all over the place. You know, and it's going to be a very expensive form of exploration. Um, so geochemical measurements certainly need to be implemented, this in a systematic manner, and in multiple locations on bodies within a system. And I'm just going to show, to thank you for you know, your patience, the type of exploration that would be nice is if you have an orbiter does some reconnaissance and then it drops some in-situ systems that has enough mobility enabling it to go from you know, one type of spectral unit to another type of spectral units, looking at a few craters and then going to this region where you have some possible ejecta from the original. Yeah, so that's my dream. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.